The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. On the roundtable this morning, Tim Hudak is here, former leader of the Ontario Conservatives, now with the Ontario Real Estate Association. Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford, live in studio, I might add. Tremendous dedication. Did you ride your bike this morning? Oops, we got to turn your microphone on. Okay. You rode your bike. 100%. Yeah. Probably uh, easier to do that in these conditions than uh, one time you came into studio and you were completely soaked because it was like 30 degrees out there. Yeah, you're not you're not skipping days on the bike like this. This is a nice shoulder season. Let's start with a couple of things that are happening at Toronto City Council this week. Yesterday by a vote, I think it was 22 to, uh, to or 21 to 2, City Council approving the vacant home tax. Actually, the tax is approved. You actually trip it, if I'm not mistaken, and you voted in favor of that. Yeah, again, this is not going to be a panacea, and the idea of the vacant home tax was never about uh, creating more revenue tools. It's about a housing outcome, making sure that we have our existing housing stock working as housing. There's there's lots of vacant units that sit for years across the city. This is an incentive to make sure that we're putting those housing units back into the housing supply chain so that we have more options for people to rent in the city. We've modeled it off of the city of Vancouver, and I would just say that you know the the policy intent here over time is that that revenue actually declines because we're shifting people to to list their units and put them back in the supply chain. And Tim Hudak, I have no idea what you're going to say on this file because obviously one of your mandates is to increase the availability of housing, but another could be that everybody should have autonomy over their own home. Yeah, look, John, I, I totally get the politics uh, of this, right? It'll be a measure that I think most people would, would find attractive on its surface politically. But look, there's two major concerns. This is your home. And, you know, I am wary of government telling you how often you have to be in your home, what you do with your home, you know, who you rent it to. There are those voices out there that think people shouldn't have a cottage or a second home. So I worry about where that kind of policy leads. And, and number two, like, I would love to see, you know, every civil servant, everybody around the council chamber or legislature focus on getting housing supply built. When you bring in these policies for political purposes, they have an opportunity cost. That means bureaucrats are there, you know, inspecting homes, monitoring how much, you know, water is used or electricity or whatever measures they have to catch those that try to get around it. That energy, John, should be spent looking to knocking down outdated bylaws, getting more homes built, speeding up the approval process. The ultimate solution here is more housing supply. We should be all hands on deck and all resources towards that single goal. Okay, and let's uh, bring in the birthday boy as our third on this panel, Joe Cristiano. And you bring knowledge from New York about policies like this, I think. Well, on the housing file, I mean, I kind of, I guess I fall into the Jerry Agar camp of you really shouldn't tell people what they should do with their property. But if we're talking about a home, like just someone's regular old home, are we talking about the second apartment in a regular home? Or are we talking about just a second home, a third home that someone owns? I'm a little more inclined to say, yeah, screw those people because... You know, you you've got extra. You, we can we can, you know, get some money back for that because why aren't you renting it? And if there's a problem, because I know in New York and in the U.S., it's a tax code issue. We allow people to take the loss as a tax loss, and so it, sometimes it is more beneficial to keep that house vacant. Yeah, Brad Bradford, I have to think the thinking is, first of all, houses that have more or less been abandoned or just unoccupied, that people are banking for the future, a better real estate market. But then you also get into people coming in and block buying multiple condos, and they're expecting the condo to be an investment. They don't really care if they rent it out because they can still make money when they sell. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, at the end of the day, you know, Tim and I both agree we need way more housing supply. This is the fastest, most accessible supply because it's already sitting there. It's just sitting there vacant. So, you know, if you don't want to rent it, you don't have to, but there's a vacant home tax, or you could bring it into the rental supply market and, and have an income uh, from that property, and most importantly, provide vital housing stock to somebody who wants to live here in Toronto. Okay, so I'm not sure where this is in the legislative pipe, but I know it's something Olivia Chow's a big fan of, apparently, Toronto putting a cap on ride hail licenses. I'm, I, I'm a little squishy on this file, Brad, because it will reduce the availability of Uber and Lyft, and in so doing, probably raise the price. Yeah, this was nuts. Uh, this was a walk-on motion in the worst possible way yesterday. So walk-on, that means, it, hey, I got something in my pocket? That's right. We had a report completely unrelated to to capping the number of licenses and a walk-on motion from the Chow administration that I think for the first time really showed us where their priorities are. And unfortunately, this wasn't about housing. This wasn't about improving congestion. This was about special interest groups. The chamber was packed uh, with the taxi lobby. We have the taxi lobby working in the mayor's office. And at the end of the day, this will increase prices of ride sharing. Uh, it will take away from mobility. And you think about all the folks who try and pick up shifts on the on the holiday season, new Canadians who are coming here, Uber, Lyft, those are great options for them uh, to, to find quick, meaningful work, get into the workplace uh, while they find their feet. And City Council, against staff recommendations, with a completely unrelated report and from advice from our city solicitor saying, hey, we're probably going to get sued and there's a good chance that we could lose, uh, the Chow administration whipped the vote and pushed this through. It was very disappointing. Okay, and I'm imagining you did not vote for it. Certainly not, no. Okay. Joe Cristiano, again, to come back to New York, one of the bonuses about that city is you're never without a taxi. And here, I can stand on a street corner for 10 minutes and not see a single one. And so I've become very reliant on Uber. Uber has its benefits, but it's also put 54,000 new vehicles on the road. And that's just for the ride share ones. We're not talking about the ones who are using it to deliver a sandwich to someone across town. Uh, another number I had heard from one of our other contributors, Rob Davis, said it might be as high as 90,000 new cars put on the road. Well, what does that do to traffic in the city? So I can understand wanting to reduce it. And there is a structure cities you know, can do. New York City has certainly done it, where you have to have a license. It tells you what kind of vehicle can be driven. Uh, but it's still that only goes so far. We're still putting that many more cars on the road. And when we have a transit system in this city, that should we should be expanding that, not expanding the number of cars on the road. Okay, but Tim Hudak, when I'm in an Uber, I'm not in my car. Yeah, for sure. And, and look, the notion that you have 54,000 cars additional on the road the streets simultaneously every day, however hours a day, is, is ludicrous and a, and a silly argument to make. This is bad in, in two respects. John, number one, as Councillor Bradford began, the notion that you just throw something on the floor, you force a vote on it with no consideration of repercussions whatsoever, is something you expect from backwater, right? And it's not the way you run the fourth largest city in North America. If the city of Toronto wants to have more authority to make more decisions and go to the provincial government and say, give us, you know, more respect, holy cats, they really just destroyed that with this kind of juvenile behavior. Number two, Sorry, just say number yeah. two on this, John. Look, it reminds me of the old maxim by Ronald Reagan, right? If something is moving, the government wants to regulate it. It's still moving, you tax it. And then when it stops, you subsidize it. If you want to have taxi version two, this is a way to get there by handicapping Uber.
Okay, I don't want to litigate the legacy of the original Mr. Dundas, uh, but support, according to a new poll, for renaming Dundas Street is just a little bit over 50%. And then when you say, by the way, it's going to cost $8.5 million, a lot fewer people are in favor. So I guess, uh, as Tim Hudak, to come back to it, follow the money. Yeah, look, look, look this is um, not a priority for taxpayers. The street itself is far more famous uh, than who it's named after, who I don't think anybody really knew about. Uh, this is something the council should drop and focus on things more important, like fixing transportation and getting more affordable homes built. Yeah, Brad Bradford, I never thought about Dundas. Um, I just think about Dundas Street, which even when I was visiting here, you know, it's very Toronto. Yeah, you know, and I grew up in Hamilton, adjacent to Dundas, the municipality. It, it had never crossed my mind, but that's not to say that it, it's not important. There's lots of things that uh, I don't know about and I learn every day. But uh, Tim's bang on on this, you know, the cost budgeted at $8 million, I can promise you it's going to actually be a lot more than that. A lot of aggravation for all the small businesses, thousands of small businesses across. And uh, I think there are far more pressing priorities, uh, you know, notwithstanding that we spent four hours yesterday relitigating the Uber taxi debate. That was unnecessary. But uh, it's about priorities, time, scarce resources and money. And to me, that's uh, that's housing, congestion, transit are at the top of the list. And this is a lot further down. So we should probably move on. I always enjoy stories that involve conflict over privately owned property that in some respects becomes in the public domain. And I'm talking about a North York building where some guy had some sort of a miracle happen to him. I think he got his eyesight back or something like that. So he built a shrine and then people started visiting the shrine and saying that they were experiencing miracles. And then the building got sold and they took down the shrine. Um, you know, let me start with Joe Cristiano on this one. I don't know why they can't take all the stuff from that shrine and maybe find another place for the shrine, but they're really mad at the building owner. Well, it's the building owners to do what the building owner wants, okay, which maybe contradicts what I just said about, you know, vacant home taxes or whatever, but it is the building owner's place to do what they want. But um, are they looking to move it to, like, City Hall or something up there? Because I think that's maybe where I, I would draw the line. Maybe there's some private property where it can go, because I'm pretty sure while it's not codified in the charter, isn't there a separation of church and state? <laughs> well, not only that, but Brad Bradford, it simply comes down to you can't just go out and build a shrine anywhere you want. Yeah, and there's a process for these sort of things to uh, receive heritage or cultural significance. I don't think that was the case in this instance. But, you know, if there is going to be a new development or project on there, maybe it is an opportunity for placemaking. You could do something with this. For my goodness sake, we move entire buildings, you know, four feet to the left sometimes on projects. So I'm pretty sure they can find something to uh, to accommodate this, uh, this shrine or, or statue if it's very important. But at the end of the day, you know, if that wasn't done before the deal, then it really is up to the discretion of the property owner. Yeah, and Tim Hudak, I appreciate for observant uh, Catholics, it's a sacred place, but it was the backyard of a private building. Yeah, sure. And I don't believe any any church, uh, any order recognizes this as a, a shrine uh, either, John. I think individuals do. Uh, you know, I might make the joke that based on the recent decisions at Toronto City Hall, they've moved the shrine there because... They need a prayer or two, but... <laughs> I think but, you need I, a crying wall at City Hall. <laughs> Maybe that's what it'll, it'll take. Uh, but, uh, you know, as Councillor said, uh, there there is a, a designation that you need to cross. It should be a high-level designation when you're telling somebody what they can do with their personal property 
when you uh, when you buy it. And this this does not come anywhere close to passing that test. So there's a restaurant where they're they won't serve kids under 10. And I find it interesting. Somebody's thinking of a charter challenge on the merits that this actually impoverishes the parents because parents of kids under 10 can't go to the restaurant, which is discrimination. Um, but still, Joe, I'll let you be the arbiter on this one. Um, I think a restaurant can, you know, have a, any kind of policy at once as long as everybody knows what it is. If you have to wear a pair of pants on your head, then, you know, that's just <laughs> the price of getting into that restaurant. Well, per- parents aren't a protected class, so, I mean, they can do pretty much whatever they want. But I know, me personally, I don't care about kids in a restaurant. My partner goes insane if there's a kid, like, screaming, and she's like, oh, my ovaries have dried up because, you know, she can't stand the <laughs> screeching every time we go out to dinner. And it drives me bonkers, but but it's her, not necessarily that. So for that alone, I would be okay with restaurants that say no kids allowed. Okay, and I'm not a grumpy old man, but I find kids don't behave particularly well in restaurants these days. You got two really small kids, Brad Bradford. Your thoughts? You wouldn't be allowed to go to Adrack Yorkville. I can't, I can't even really imagine me going out for dinner, let alone somebody wanting to actually go with me and my family. But yeah, I mean, two and a half kids, uh, two years old, that's, uh, that's a lot. And uh, I, I'm extremely sympathetic, empathetic. You know, you get on an airplane now and I hear the shrieking baby and it's sort of like uh, nails on the chalkboard, but I'm like, oh man, like that, that parent's having a rough go there. So I'm sympathetic to the situation, but if the restaurant wants to sort of focus its clientele, the good news is we have literally thousands of wonderful restaurants here in Toronto that uh, you can bring your kids to and maybe Boston Pizza is a good option. I might add, I've got this restaurant's menu in front of me and maybe the point is moot or as a friend of mine says, mute. Uh, but their <laughs> uh, tandoori roast, tandoor roasted boneless chicken is $32. Their colonial style spicy lamb curry is $39. It doesn't sound like a family menu to me. Yeah, I'm not sure if that uh, those strong flavors would really be uh, on, on the top of the ballot for my two-year-old daughter either. So, Thank you all. Good to have you. Tim Hudak, Brad Bradford, Joe Cristiano. Catch the roundtable, round one at 7.45, round two at 8.45. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.